Directed by Alan Smithy, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two guys who've hit the mic. It's Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. All right, so we are we are trying something a little bit different today. Uh, first off, Corey, Corey, who gave us the Alan Smithy reference? That was written by Alan Smithy. Oh, sorry, Lorenzo Rapa. Ah, uh, well, you know. He changed his mind at the last minute. <laughs> so uh, we want you to email us at godsatdigigods.com and tell us how we sound this week. Uh, yeah, we have new these new little mics. Well, they're, 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 very the, exciting. they're the Samson Go mics. If they don't sound good, then I'm just going to return them. Uh, no, wait, wait, wait. How, how much do these cost? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I oh, you know, you're just not telling. No, I'm you trying don't want to remember. Tell the audience, no. You're a liar. <laughs> no, you I'm are withholding to... information from our beloved listeners. What are they like? Like thirty-five, forty-five, something like that. Uh, something like that. Are you asking me? They're like they're like like thirty or forty a piece. That's something. Cool. Maybe forty-five. Can't remember which it was. Good job. Anyway, no, I mean it's well. They were. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking to upgrade our microphone situation. You don't like to wear the lav. I do. I do not like to wear the lav because I can't get up. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to get to a. Uh, if you want food during the show. Yeah. How how will a lav help us? I don't know. Accomplish giving you food, which I can't give you this week because all the food I have try to, has nuts try in to, it. Try to put the mic so that it's a little more uh, uh, directional, so mm-hmm. that because right now you're speaking out and the mic is below you. Would you like me to put the mic farther away from me? You can clip it onto the top of your laptop if you want. That's what that clamp is for. This this, this? yes. What, what part of this is a clamp? It, it goes like this, Junior. See? Oh. <laughs> this is real. This is this is quality podcasting programming you're listening okay. to right now. Yeah. So uh, there you go. Oh, look at that. How's that? How's that sound? It sounds uh, not great. <laughs> for some reason, mine. Better? For some reason, mine sounds better. But that's okay. Uh, wait, now, hang on a second. How does it sound? It sounds echoey. It sounds muddy, watery. Because it's too far away. Yeah, it must be. What if I just put it down? Well, see, now that's good. What if I just put it down like? I this? feel like this is singing in the rain. What if I? How about this? Is this all right? Uh, yeah, that, 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 that works. Is it okay. better than me clipping it on the computer? Oh, Don, because you know we go. It's, it's that greatest, greatest scene ever. Anyway. Well, sorry. is this it? Are we doing it this way this week? We're, I guess we're, yeah, we're doing it this way this, way this week. We're right. doing it this way this week. Okay. By the way. We're uh, doing it this way this week, sweet sister. Okay. That's a tongue twister. Sweet, 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 sweet backs, badass song. It's very uh, echoey, but hopefully the, the listeners will not object. So carry well, on. okay, if it doesn't sound good, we shouldn't use these. Are you saying it doesn't sound good? I, I look, I, I just want to. Does know it sound it's... better than what we had before? I don't know. If it doesn't sound better than what we had before, and what we had before is perfectly convenient and fine, yeah. let's just keep what we had before. Yeah, well, I guess. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, so I may now, make some effects adjustments or something here, but this is a whole new—it's a whole new operation. So we'll we'll do what we can. Now, I did not see you last week in um, the Equalizer. No, you sure didn't. How was it? Uh, it's terrible. Is it really? Now, I'm a huge. Here's the thing. Yeah. I'm a huge Denzel Washington apologist. I know you are. And he's my favorite of all time. Yeah. I will just see anything he's in. I don't care what it is. Preacher's Wife. I'm in. Yeah. Saw that. Don't care. Love Denzel. Yeah. This thing, it's like within, within. 20 minutes, they're bringing in the cliched Russian gangsters. Like, of, of, of all the people that the See, Equalizer, it, it was so bad. So, it takes half an hour to get started. Yeah, yeah. Because they're establishing this relationship between 
the Equalizer, and mm -hmm. Chloe Grace Moretz, mm -hmm. who plays a prostitute. And that half an hour is interminable because, note to filmmakers, just because you spend a lot of time with characters doesn't mean you're learning about them mm -hmm. or investing in them. It just means we're staring at them for half an oh, hour. Oh, dear. And then the Russian gangsters come in. And you're like, and, and then every time somebody died, I thought to myself, you just got equalized. You know, but he never I, said that. I, I, here, before we get into the DVDs, I, here's it's my... It's very violent, which is good. Yeah, it's fine. No, it's good. Violence yeah, is good. But here's, here's, my, here's, my, here's my issue. They, they keep trying to take these iconic television figures and reinvent them for the movies in, in really kind of irritating ways. The, the first of those, were, well, I'm sure there were others, but the first one that comes to mind is The Saint. Val Kilmer as The Saint, really? Simon Templer is an English guy. Why do you cast Val Kilmer? And they didn't even make him saint. There was nothing, like the theme the, from the TV show. There's nothing from Leslie Charteris' creation. None of that was in the movie. It was just sort of like, let's just borrow this name of this TV show that most people haven't seen. We'll throw Val Kilmer in because he was Batman once, and hopefully people will go see it. It was terrible. It had nothing to do with it. There were so many great British actors who could be Simon Templer, and they went with Val Kilmer. Are you kidding me? Now... Denzel is a great, a great actor, but is he the equalizer? I mean, the whole there point... There is no equalizer. It's well, a the guy whole, who, who yeah, beats up but people. Edward who Woodward, Edward Woodward as the equalizer was this, this older... Engl the, the whole point of it was that the equalizer was like who James Bond might be in, you know, 30 years. He's an older guy. He's a father figure. He's British. Well, you have He's the older guy. You have the father figure. Denzel's not old enough. I mean, it's, you got to be graying. Like, like I mean, he's it, bald. You, you got to be graying, and and it it, it it just it just isn't. He's well, not he's not that guy. Here, here are your choices. It feels Either, like Man on Fire. It feels like another Man on Fire. I love Man on Fire. I did too. And and Man on Fire is great. And you, you feel like he's doing. You know, how like Liam Neeson keeps doing the same movie over and over again because somehow he see you know, Liam Neeson would be a good guy to play the Equalizer in about fifteen years. Yeah, he's 75. Liam Neeson's like 60 years old. Yeah, so, so like when he's about 70, 75, he's really graying. He's a guy who could yeah. play that part. You know, they, they did that movie. It's called Going in Style. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's like you, you, you got you to gotta, you gotta kind of play to the... I'll give you another case in point. You know what I did yesterday? I was taking a nap with the baby. How and is that like killing Russian gangsters, it's, taking a it's, nap with the baby? It, absolutely the same thing. Precisely the same thing. It's wow. just, as, just as difficult. Wow. Putting her down. No, the, the, um, I was taking a nap with the baby, and I thought, you know what? I never use my Netflix account. Damn it, I'm going to use my Netflix account. And I'm, and I'm not going to watch something that I'm, I have to watch for work. I'm not going to watch anything for, like, I'm on NPR again on the 3rd. I'm like, I'm not going to watch any ultraviolet things for the podcast. I'm not going to watch anything that, you know, no, no Vimeo screening links for, uh, for NPR. I'm going to watch something that I damn well want to watch for the first time in, like, months. I'm just going to watch something for the hell of it. How often does that actually happen? I can't wait to hear what you watched. I watched the two-part pilot for Hawaii Five-0 from 1968 <laughs> on Netflix. That's terrible. And uh, Cocoon. Terrible. It, they introduced Wolf Fat and the whole thing. It's terrible. It, it's fantastic. It's terrible. It's so good. You're saying that because it's nostalgic. It doesn't mean it's good No, TV. it really is good. It's damn good. And I was watching it and I was like... This is why the new Hawaii Five-0 just incredibly sucks because they just said they they grabbed some guy and said yeah your name's McGarrett. It's like McGarrett is a dude. He's got style. He's got attitude. He's got hair. He's got a whole thing going. Jack Lord was McGarrett. You cannot just put plug somebody else into that part. You can't. Well, they they plugged what's his name into the part. 
like in 1968, they plugged what's name into a part. He just became that guy. Exactly. He just believed it. Exactly. And who, who, and, and so. And it, by the way, you realize that, that in that pilot, in that two part pilot, the guy who plays Dano is not James MacArthur. Oh my God. It's I, the guy who plays the shooter in uh, Jack O'Kelly or whatever his name is, who plays the shooter in Targets. Jack Ruby? No, in Targets. He's in Targets. Oh, it's, and Frank, they cast it's Frankenheimer's him. Targets. No, not no, Frank no, 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 no. The, the, the Bogdanovich's yeah. Targets. And, and uh, he, he's the shooter in that film. And they, seconds. Yes. yes, and they cast him as uh, as Dano in uh, in the Hawaii Five O pilot, and apparently uh, people hated him, so they they fired him, and he only worked for another year and a half, and his acting career ended. Good. How sad is that? That's not sad at all. He sounds like he sucked. He was in Targets. He was wait, 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 what's his name? It's like Jack O'Kelly or something. Jack. Okay, talk about DVDs. For okay. No one cares. Anyway, uh, uh, Equalizer. You know, it's very violent, and there's some stuff where you're like, "Yeah, get him, Denzel," because he's awesome. But generally speaking, it's really cliched and just long, and I just I was just rolling my eyes. Well, there we go. So uh, I got some classical uh, music things that I'm going to blow through because Mark's going to make fun of me if I if I uh, spend any time on this later uh, in the show. I'm, I'm looking up Jack O'Kelly on IMDb to see what happened to him. Yeah, let's find out what happened to him because uh, he, he probably became like a crack addict or it's, something. Is it Tim O'Kelly? Tim O'Kelly. Tim O'Kelly. Maybe that's it. Whatever it is. Anyway. All right, so uh, we've got Puccini's La Boheme on DVD, not on Blu-ray. That's the one bummer about this. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's an import, and this is um, uh, live from the, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this, Rummersteinbrook St. Margaretten uh, in July of 2013. He was the Mod Squad. Yes, he was. He was the Mod Squad, Medical Center, Gunsmoke. Batman, he played Royal Jester, and Pete in Batman. See? He was in Shane, the Big Valley, and his uh, career ended in 1970. Isn't that sad? Anyway, so that's, that's a, it's a nice version of La Boheme, uh, but it's on DVD, so you don't get the lossless audio and all that uh, wonderful stuff. You get a really, really super cool thing here. Uh, this is a Blu-ray from the classic archive of Ideal Audience. And it's uh, just a collector's edition of uh, performances by great conductors. And it includes Von Karajan and uh, Moravinsky, Otto Klemperer, uh, Leopold Stokowski. I mean, you know, the the best thing that Leopold Stokowski ever did was when uh, Bugs Bunny played him. Remember? Mm. Leopold. Leopold. Thank God that was a joke, because if you knew anything about Leopold Stokowski, I would have killed you. (laughs) I do. He's the guy who did the score for Fantasia. Performed it. Go to hell. Okay. Anyway, uh, so lots of great pieces here. Brahms, Debussy, Mozart, Ravel, Shostakovich, uh, Tchaikovsky, and of course Beethoven and Wagner, uh, Bruckner, uh, Stravinsky, Schubert, uh, Mussorgsky. It's pretty great. Ferré, who's one of my favorite composers, a French romantic. Uh, the uh, Berlin Philharmonic uh, performing Waldbrunner. Uh, you know, I like Wait, the Wait, hang on a second. According to Family Search, yes. Tim O'Kelly's real name was Timothy Patrick Wright. Yes. He was born March 12, 1941, and died January 4, 1990. All right. So now you know what, now you know what happened to him. There you go. So Waldbrunner is a, is a particular concert. Apparently this happens every year. And uh, they've got uh, on three Blu-rays here a number of performances from 2009, 10, and 11. Lots of great stuff. Uh, Kachaturian's uh, Spartacus and Phrygia from uh, Spartacus is one of my favorites on here. Love it. Elgar's uh, Salut d'Amour, opus number 12. Fantastic. I'm really glad we're starting the show with Respighi, this. Respighi, Shostakovich, really it's good stuff. Oh my I'm, God. I'm, I'm, hey, I'm burning through this, man. I'm burning through it. 
another thing from the uh, Vienna Philharmonic, two Blu-rays. This is Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg. This is an opera. Uh, you know, I, I watch a little bit of these operas. I never really understand the stories, but, uh, you know, it, there's a, there seems to be a certain verve going on at a certain point. Uh, touching the sound, The Improbable Journey of Nobuyuki Sujii. Two eyes at the end, even though there are no eyes in Japanese. I never know why they do that. How do they know, like, when to use two of our vowels? How does who know? In Japanese. You ever notice sometimes a Japanese name will have, like, two vowels, two eyes at the end? How do you know? They don't have eyes in Japanese. You know what? I When I was in Japan, I, I learned a very simple way to uh, read everybody's name and everything. Yeah. Just pronounce everything. Okay. Every, I mean, just, if it's if it's... Takashi Mikei, yes, that's what it is. All right. Well, like, anyway, there's no like silent letters or weird, crazy vowels or. Nobuyuki Tsuji yeah, no, is a blind pianist. He's blind. It's amazing, I see. Uh, and he is one of the great pianists in the world. It's really extraordinary. So uh, this is a very touching story. It's on Blu-ray. Worth checking out. Uh, Merchant of Venice. Uh, by Tchaikovsky uh, an opera in three acts and epilogue after William Shakespeare by the Vienna uh, Symphony Uh, really nicely done really really beautiful that's on Blu-ray that uh, also worth checking out Uh, Ariadne auf Naxos by Richard Strauss uh, the London Philharmonic on Blu-ray also excellent really really good bunch of stuff here and we're getting down to something that I know you're going to enjoy as well uh, the Odeon Splats concert. The Odeon Splats. That's great, Wade. That's just great. Odeon Splats concert. Uh, Verdi and Wagner. Uh, this is lovely. I mean, it's a it's a really cool location. Uh, it's an orchestra in in uh, Bayern Munich, and it's just really really cool. And then there is uh, Rossini's uh, L'Italiana in Algeri, which is done all kind of weird, funky style. It feels it feels very kind of uh, Barbara Barbarella esque, uh, so that's uh, you know it's Rossini. What do you want? And then uh, this is the one I really wanted to recommend. Uh, this is kind of a really cool deal. This is um, Shining Night, a portrait of composer Morton Lauridsen. Now Lauridsen is a is kind of a fixture over at USC. So me being a UCLA graduate takes something for me to actually say something nice about USC people. But I'll tell you, uh, Lawrence, if you're not familiar with him, he is a contemporary American composer who does choral music, and his album Lux Eterna is one of the most breathtaking things you will ever hear. He is one, truly one of the great modern composers of classical music, especially choral music. And uh, this gets into who he is and why he is significant, and uh, you know, it's just an, a wonderful documentary profile of one of the great living composers uh, in, in the United States. Uh, it's only 73 minutes long, so it goes really quickly. And if you love sort of, you know, things about composers, definitely check this out. It gets into Lux Eterna as well as Nocturne and uh, O Magnum Mysterium and a lot of his other, uh, his, his other uh, compositions. But he's a, a fascinating figure, amazing composer, and uh, this is just a, a really, really... This is just really a worthwhile DVD to pick up. So um, definitely check it out. That is... Shining Night, a portrait of composer Morten Lauridsen. M-O-R-T-E-N-L-A-U-R-I-D-S-E-N. By uh, Michael Stillwater. Very good, very good filmmaker. All right, Mark. Uh, oh, anything else? I, no, no, no. Like there's other... There's oh, other there's no, other... no, keep going. I don't want to, I don't want to stop right. you from talking about uh, no, no, opera. No, no, Carry on. What, what else do we have on the music front? Oh, uh, well, actually, before the or music performa- front... performance, just performance. Yeah. I see that that's... You know, I wouldn't call him a singer. <laughs> Richard Lewis? No. No. 
Richard Lewis is uh, a longtime stand-up comic, mostly famous in the uh, kind of the '90s. Um, but he is known for being one of those quintessential, you know, uh, nervous, neurotic New Yorker types. I actually produced Richard a bunch of times on shows back in the '90s, and um, actually, there is something. I actually, I gave Richard because I produced Richard so many times on shows. Yeah. There is a um, wherever he went to school. I can't remember where it was. Um, they did. A, they um, dedicated part of their TV and media center to Richard Lewis yeah. as one of the more famous famous graduates. And so I remember I was in the. Um, I was talking to Richard. I was going over the show with him. Mm -hmm. And when I go over the show with him, I have my questions, the questions that the host is going to ask Richard sure. on a piece of paper. Right. Right? It's got my name on it. It's got Richard's name on it. It's got the questions on it. So when we're done, Richard says, can I have that, can I have that paper? And I said, why? He says, because it might have been Ohio State. Because um, at my alma mater, they are going to, um, they're going to have a collection of my notes. Um, Ohio State. Look at that. I remember Ohio State. They're going to have a collection of my notes, a collection right. of my writings, a collection of memorabilia and tchotchkes from my career and life, and I would like to have this included. Oh, I was like, wow. Very okay, nice. Richard, here it is. Anyway, Richard Lewis, this is uh, called Bundle of Nerves, and Richard is, um, he's 67 now, so um, he's getting up there, but this is a two-disc two set that contains a lot of his stand-up comedy performances, uh, starting in 1979 and going all the way up until uh, 1997 and beyond. This is good stuff. Richard Lewis was one of the original Larry Davidy types, and he did it great. He was neurotic and funny, and he bore his personal scars right there for everybody to see, and uh, he was great. So if you like Richard Lewis, and you should, if you like stand-up comedy, check out Richard Lewis' Bundle of Nerves. How about that Scotland? You know what? <laughs> exactly. You know what? Um, aren't you going to ask how I got from Richard Lewis to Scotland? Yeah. Because Richard Lewis is a stand-up comic, and you reminded me that I spent a significant amount of time uh, late at night, past few days, just watching clips of Billy Connolly. Yes, and Billy Connolly's Connolly. Scottish, and Scotland, you know. You know what I thought? Just I th voted not to be independent. I, I thought to myself, if, if they want independence, it's their life, let them have it good for them, but they're going to hate it. <laughs> no, I, my description is this. Scotland is like that kid who's been living in his parents' basement for 305 years, and he is so excited he finally gets to move out and be on his own. And it's like, screw you, Mom, screw you, Dad. And then he realizes that he's now going to have to pay rent, and he's got to do his own laundry and cook his own meals. And suddenly the basement's not so bad after all. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Ah, oh, they made the right choice. Well, it was, the, it was the women, you know that. Did you, that, that in, the, in polls, men voted overwhelmingly to be independent it was the women who were like you gotta be kidding me so it was, the, it was the women's vote that actually carried it once again women are smarter than men in Scotland women wear the pants that's right way. classic Devo mm. the, men who, the men who make the music I love Devo plus Butch Devo and the Sundance gig I love this Devo this is a, a DVD this is a live in concert from 1978, 1979, and they jump all the way up to uh, 1996 for the Butch Devo and the Sundance gig, and uh, this is great. It's got uh, most of the mo uh, most of the famous songs that you know them for, and uh, they wear funny hats because they're Devo. Love them. I've actually seen Devo perform live at uh, wow. one of my one of my 10K races. They were right there on the floor of the Coliseum, the LA Memorial Coliseum, performing. Now, what they, were Mark Mothersbaugh, huh? they were amazing. They were amazing. Mark Mothersbaugh, yeah, Simpsons theme song. Yes, anyway. Uh, Jethro Tull. No, not, not Simpsons. No, that's Danny Elfman. No, Mark Mothersbaugh does... Uh, does uh, it was, it was Spongebob it was, or something like that. I think it was Spongebob. It, it might be Spongebob, but it was also Pee-wee's Playhouse. Pee-wee's Playhouse. 
Yeah, that's what it was. Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson thing is a brick live in Iceland. Now, this is not Jethro Tull. Yeah. Hang on. I'm going to pause. I'm going to try an effect just to see if I can clean up the audio. Hang on one second. All right. Is this any better? Does this sound any better? I don't You're know. You're asking me. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Anyway, Jethro Tull uh, is Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson. Now, this is not Jethro Tull, the entire band playing in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just Jethro Tull, who, as you know, is the uh, flautist of the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still good stuff because he's still very talented and the guy's a total survivor and the guy rocks and you got to love it. And uh, so there you go. Thick as a Brick was uh, released in 1972, and uh, he plays a bunch of songs from uh, Thick as a Brick, well, some other stuff there, too. Um, good. Good stuff. Lots of bonus material. I'm a big fan of anything Iceland, having been there and eaten there, cured shark and dolphin. That's right, Wade. When I was in Iceland, I, I ate dolphin. I, 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 you're welcome to it. <laughs> dolphin Carpaccio. Also, we have a Queen, Live at the Rainbow, 1974. I love the fact that uh, the great thing about these Blu-rays that they come out with, this is from Universal and Eagle Vision, is that uh, you get these concerts that are like 40 years old, and now they're just looking great on Blu-ray, sounding pretty damn good, and uh, a lot of classic concerts. Anyway, we have uh, from the Rainbow Theater in uh, North London from 1974, Queen plays all their uh, classic hits, including um, uh, Killer Queen and, uh, and Guitars. <laughs> The guitar solo. <laughs> I was looking at the back of the box to remind myself what they played. Yeah. And track, I just, track 12 is called Guitar Solo. One's oh, one sweet. One of my favorite songs. That's probably Brian May doing uh, just a guitar solo. <laughs> anyway, no, I, and they're, uh, they, they, they actually do Jailhouse Rock. Which I, I, I uh, you know, the Rainbow is just a, was a legendary place in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, that was the, that was like the rock place. And in the 80s in particular, it was, it was for, for hair bands and, and metal bands. It's where, you know, Cinderella and Motley Crue and all those guys and their groupies hang, hung, would, would hang out. And what's interesting about that is, you know what the rainbow used to be? Uh, it, was like a, it was like a really classy bar and grill back in the golden days. It's where, it's where uh, Vincent Minnelli and Judy Garland used to hang out. I think it's even where they had their first date. It's the golden days now, Wade. Yeah, well, whatever. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch. I'm, I'm gonna try one more time. Hang on. So I don't think I don't think any of these audio uh, switches things that I'm doing are making any difference. Okay. Carry on. Carry on. Uh, I was not a fan of Swedish House Mafia, which was the uh, electronic dance music trio. Um, they were only around for a couple of years. I never really liked their music, but I thought it was pretty fascinating. Uh, their film Leave the World Behind. Now, Leave the World Behind is a kind of a concert uh, documentary thing that charts the band's final tour. Now, by all accounts, they pretty much broke up in order to save their friendship. And uh, it's good stuff. Again, not a big fan of the music, but I am a fan of watching them interact and getting a sense. It's almost like a eulogy for the band. It's almost like they're Mm -hmm. playing their own funeral, in a sense, because they know it's going to be their last tour together because they're breaking up. So uh, Swedish House Mafia on their final world tour, leave the the world behind. Um, I liked it. Don't like the music, but I definitely like them, and I like this documentary. So you're a man. Uh, now, wait. Here's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention to you a Blu-ray that I only want you to watch if you hate me. Okay. This is called Believe Tour Dance Experience. Now, Believe Tour Dance Experience. <laughs> it's it's hosted by this choreographer and dancer, and what he does is he takes you step by step into all the dance moves that Justin Bieber did during his Believe Tour. So you get Justin's, da- not Justin, you get Justin's dancers, you get Justin's choreographer, and the guy, they teach it to you, they break it down, everything that Justin's 
backup dancers did when they were on their Believe tour. Yeah, so I don't, I don't there's care. tips for techniques to dance like boyfriend and as long as you love me and all sorts of crap yeah, ass not so BS interested. ridiculous douchebag songs that, that horrible person sings and whatever the hell he does. Not so interested. And so it's called Believe Tour Dance Experience. Basically, I, I, I think I know what's happening here actually. Mm. What's going to happen here is anybody who buys this, their name will be entered into a database yeah. and they'll be killed. So that way we'll know who to kill. That's actually very interesting. Uh, it's an interesting theory. Uh, wait, there's a band called um, Of Montreal, and uh, the past is a grotesque animal is about the leader of this crazy indie pop band. Actually, the, the, their stuff is kind of catchy. A little weird, but kind of catchy. Kevin Barnes is the leader of the band called Of Montreal, and, um, you know, he is one of those guys who's just very driven to make music. He is so driven that, you know, it, it costs him friendships and relationships, and it's kind of interesting, and it, the, the movie's kind of about, like, is it really worth the sacrifices you have to make to just so completely and overwhelmingly uh, pursue your artistic dreams. And so it's got that interesting little uh, thematic uh, schmear there that I liked. All right. The past is a grotesque animal I, from Oscilloscope. I wish it was on um, mm-hmm. Blu-ray, but it is on... Um, just on DVD. Uh, DVD. S- some special features, including some live performances and some deleted scenes, but uh, yeah, check it out. All right, so now that's music out of the way. Uh, do me a favor there with your microphone. I want to. I'm just testing. I'm testing things. There's a little switch on the side. Do you see the switch on the inside? I'm working on it. Hang on. Yes. Pop that switch up. Pop it up. We're gonna take the take the uh, the dB enhancement off. How is that? That better? That might actually be be better. Oh my god. It might be better. Wow. Um, yeah. Now you're a little loud. You're a little hot. Oh, I'm hot, oh, all right. Okay, so anyway, um, a couple of things I want to make mention of real quickly because uh, we're not going to talk about them on the show today. We're going to hold these for Halloween, but you should know that they are out this week. One is from Anchor Bay, the Halloween Complete Collection Blu-ray set. The Complete Collection, every Halloween movie ever in one set. Very impressive because you're having to deal with multiple companies here. And uh, including, you know, of course, uh, Halloween 2, which has nothing to do with Halloween. Uh, and multiple versions of all of them. It's a it's a big deal. So that's gonna we're gonna talk about that for Halloween, and then probably also uh, include mention of that in our holiday gift guide. And then the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 40th Anniversary Collector's Edition Blu-ray combo is out, and we will be uh, discussing that as well uh, around come Halloween time. So Woo! we also have an interview today, Mark. Woo. We're gonna end the show with a rather uh, spectacular interview that we have. We're done now. No. Oh. Uh, I got to... nervous. I thought we were done now. Boy, you are really loud all of a sudden. That's weird. That was supposed to take the uh, the decibels off. This could be our final show, folks, because you know what? This is very interesting what we're doing right now. Okay. Um, my goodness, that's suddenly really loud. I may have to MIDI you down or something. Uh, can you can you can you be a little more restrained in your enthusiasm? <laughs> Never mind. I, I cannot be more restrained in my enthusiasm for my hatred of Justin Bieber. Okay, good. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, are, uh, we, got a, we got a really interesting suggestion uh, some weeks ago from listener John Lusty. And um, he suggested that we do uh, a, an interview with one of the guys or both of the guys who run the uh, Warner Archive. And so we actually had a conversation, or I had a conversation, with George Feltenstein, who is president of the Warner Archive and who uh, co-hosts a, uh, a podcast of his own, and as it turns out, is a faithful listener to this podcast. 
which suddenly makes me feel like, wow, we're not just speaking into the ether. Uh, important people listen to us, and, and I feel like I have to rise to the occasion. So it, it, it elevates our expectations of ourselves. But we had a, we had a great conversation with him, and, and there were a lot of questions that John had that I had never even thought of. And uh, so I had a great conversation with uh, George Feltenstein. And we will uh, end the show with that, and uh, fans of the Warner Archive will get a sense of what actually goes into the curation and the selection and the mastering of all of those amazing films, which it, otherwise would not exist, by the way. I mean, they're, it's, you know, they're, we often say on this show that like, it, it, you know, it's a pity that something has to wind up on Warner Archive, which is not a slam on Warner Archive. It's sort of a slam on audiences for not, you know, a lot of Greta Garbo movies. I'd love it if, if you could sell them to a million people, but there aren't a million people interested in Greta Garbo. Fortunately, we have the Warner Archive, which makes it possible for those who are interested in, get, in Greta Garbo to find those old silent Greta Garbo movies and, and get them on DVD. And it would, that would never other, otherwise be possible without Warner Archive. That's great, Wade. Uh, thanks yeah. for inviting me to the interview. You were invited. You were invited to be a part of it. But, you know, you're producing TV and things like that. Okay, new movies. I'm going to crank through some new movies right now. Uh, one of them is called Last Passenger. This is on Blu-ray. Uh, this is from uh, Cohen Media. It is not in the traditional Cohen Media packaging. Cohen Media usually releases their stuff in uh, in kind of a clear Blu-ray case. This is in a just regular generic blue Blu-ray case, and for actually a smart reason, because it's not an art film. This is a commercial film. This is actually a a I mean, despite a limited budget, it's really really sharp and really suspenseful, and a, a really nice little Hitchcockian exercise. And uh, I tip my hat to everybody involved. The director is Omid Nushin, um, British director, and it is clearly a resume piece for him. This is, uh, this is the, the kind of film that a lot of these guys in other countries make when they don't have a lot of money, but they want to sort of send a message to Hollywood that says, hey, if you're looking for somebody to direct a big $200 million blockbuster summer tentpole uh, superhero movie who doesn't get, who, who's, who's better than Michael Bay and won't ask for Michael Bay money, hey, look over here. And I would hire this guy in a heartbeat. It is just terrific. Uh, Doug Ray Scott, who's a totally underrated actor, by the way, Scottish, um, uh, plays a, a, guy, a father who, with his son, they get on just a regular late-night train on their way home, and you think everything's just going to be sort of fine, and then suddenly it's not stopping. It's not stopping at all the, the, the destinations it's supposed to stop at. And he and some of the other passengers start to realize something is wrong, maybe their train has been hijacked. And there are all these signs, these little telltale signs. And, uh, of course, it wraps up in a, in a great big kind of uh, speed scenario, right? It's a little bit of a uh, little bit of speed, a little bit of, you know, all those, those chase movies. But, man, it's really sharp. It's really, really well done. Not brilliant, you know, it's very, very constrained. But uh, considering what, what they were working with, man, it's really a sharp little film. So um, that's The Last Passenger with Doug Ray Scott. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, also, The Calling with uh, Susan Sarandon, who apparently can't really anchor big movies anymore, but this is a DVD of The Calling, which also stars uh, Topher Grace, Donald Sutherland, Gil Bellows, and Ellen Burstyn, another uh, you know former Oscar regular in the 70s. Remember, Ellen Burstyn was nominated like every year oh, yeah. in the 70s. 
Alice like, doesn't live here anymore. It was remember in the seventies. It was like every single year it was the same actresses. Shelley like, Winters. It was no. It was it was like <laughs> it was Ellen Burstyn and Glenda Jackson and Jill Clayburgh. Right, and it, who and uh, who is that? Uh, I'm, I'm getting and old. Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton. That was like every year they were all in it, either in supporting or actress, one of the two. Louise Fletcher. Louise Fletcher, of course, certainly for uh, Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Susan Sarandon here plays a detective. And uh, Ellen Burstyn plays her mom, who uh, rather a glorious drunk of a mom, uh, borrowing a little bit from her uh, uh, Requiem for a Dream character, um, which I'm sure Mark just absolutely adores. But anyway... Uh, I do! Yeah, I know you do. Anyway, uh, there, so the, this is kind of a macabre uh, whodunit thing, trying to figure out these murders, and Donald Sutherland plays a priest, which always amuses me. You can put Donald Sutherland into, into, into like, he could play a priest, he could play a nun. He's cool. He could just play anything. He's the man. It's a good little movie. Yep. And uh, The Rover is one of my favorite films uh, of the year so far. I thought The Rover was, was terrific. I am a, uh, a gigantic fan of David Michaud. David Michaud, of course, was the... Uh, director of Animal Kingdom, and I thought that was brilliant, and he made kind of a gritty, somewhat near-future-ish, Mad Max-ish movie with the rover, which is more constrained. Animal Kingdom is big. The rover is small. Animal Kingdom has scope. The rover is very focused on minutia and detail, and it's very sparse in its dialogue. Uh, and a surprisingly great performance by Robert Pattinson, who plays an American Southerner. Uh, basically, the idea here is that there's some kind of post-apocalyptic thing going on. Which, which you, you never know what it is. You don't really know what it is. No. And, 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 but it's, it's sort of like this is between now and Mad Max. This is the linkage, right? If, if you want to put it that way, it's much more realistic. And something has happened. Society's disintegrated. Uh, Guy Pierce is sitting in some kind of makeshift bar. Everybody guards their stuff. Everyone's strapped with a shotgun. And outside, these two brothers, one of them is Robert Pattinson, they, they're coming from some kind of illicit encounter, and they got a buddy who's bleeding to death, and um, they steal his car. Uh, and actually, no, Pattinson does not steal his car. Pattinson is... I'm trying to remember how this, how this all shook out. I'm Pat- not bailing you out on this. No, well, I anyway. I want you to suffer. Anyway... Pattinson's brother takes off mm-hmm. with the car, mm-hmm. and then Guy Pierce goes out, and doesn't he stop Pattinson? Is that how it worked? I can't even remember the beginning. <laughs> Just, did you like it or not? I, I like it a lot. I like, I like it a lot too. I've completely forgotten the setup, but it, you don't need to remember the setup anyway. It's, uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty sharp, and uh, it's just the relationship between Guy Pierce and Robert Pattinson along the way as they're trying to track down Pattinson's brother, and, uh, you know, there are some cops in this thing, but they're almost like vigilante cops. It's a really, and, and the way the thing wraps up is so interesting, because you're trying to get inside Guy Pierce's head the whole time. What's making him tick? Why is he so mean? Uh, why is he so determined to get his car back? Uh, I mean, like... The things, the, the lengths to which he will go, the tortures that he will inflict. It's a brutal, gritty, really stylish, cool film. And uh, David Michaud had all kinds of offers to do uh, Hollywood films, and um, he chose not to. He wanted to do this, and he—it's uh, based on a story that he co-wrote with uh, Joel Edgerton, who, of course, was—you know—Joel Edgerton helped give him his career launch by producing uh, Animal Kingdom. And uh, I, I think it's, it's a sharp little movie. So that's on uh, Blu-ray and a digital HD combo set. And uh, definitely worth checking out. Some really cool special features on here, mostly featurettes. Um, but that's it. Check it out. <laughs> that was a great, <laughs> that was wait, a great wait, plot wait. synopsis. Yeah, anyway. Oh, Wade. That was horrible, but, you know. What are you going to do? 
They can't all be gems. Hey, that's my line. I know. I stole that from an old Mad Magazine. I know. You didn't know that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try changing switching up my microphone again. <laughs> I think the uh, the 10 dB limiter was. Uh, now should I do something sw- sw- too? Yeah, switch yours back to the middle. Yes, switch sir. That, that little thing back to the middle. All right, hang on. Working on it. There How's we go. That better. It is. It is better. It is better. Okay, so yeah. uh, so here's the thing. Uh, whichever listeners are remaining, uh, <laughs> we can talk about neighbors. Yeah. With Seth Rogen and uh, Zac Efron. And uh, you know what? I like this movie. I like this movie because it's disgusting, but not in that really over-the-top, obnoxious, disgusting way. But also, it's funny. And it's disgusting, but yet funny, but not too disgusting. But also, there's another movie in this movie yeah. that I don't even think they knew they were making. Perhaps. There is something here about that very uncertain transition to adulthood that Seth Rogen and his wife are going through. Like, they see this, this frat boy neighbor, Zac Efron, they're having all sorts of fun. Yeah. And they still think they're young enough to be able to mix it up with the young kids. Mm. But actually, the young kids, they're really not. They're adults now, and they have a baby, and they have to be adults. And so it's, it's I don't know that the movie really, I'm not sure what the movie wanted to make any points about this, but it actually does, that sometimes you've got to say, you know what? We're adults now. We've got a baby to take care of. We have a family to raise. Cool. We have jobs we have to go to. And you know what? As much as we used to be a frat boy, maybe you know, eighteen months ago, two years ago, five years ago, his days are over. All right. I kind of like that. I mean, I feel that again. I that was very. Uh, that's the subtext of the film. The the un the unspoken subtext. I'm not sure even the film knew it was putting out there. But um, if, if you put that aside, it's still funny. The frat guys are idiots, and Seth Rogen is funny. And again, there's a bunch of you know, like alcohol-laced uh, breast milk and all that sort of stuff that just sort of like, okay, I get it, more of that, blah, 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 I get that. But still, it's funny. It's the movie you expect it to be with Seth Rogen and Zac Efron, and uh, it's good. It's funny. Liked it. On board. I'm going to have to watch it now. See, also, I had avoided now, Ro- this. Now, Rose Byrne. Here's the thing with Rose Byrne. Rose Byrne. I yes. burned a rose once. Rose Byrne. I was getting confused. I was setting the table, and I forgot which was the flower and the candle, and I... Well, I don't get it. Um, well, Rose Byrne, who, by the way, is delicious. Um, True. She, I saw her, not her personally, although I wish I had. She was in um, This Is Where I Leave You, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. The mm-hmm. Jason Bateman thing, which is not very good. Sure. But she's uh, just a cog in that big sitcom machine of This Is Where I Leave You. Yeah. And I'm looking at her going, you know, you've been in a whole lot of movies that I've seen you in, and I know you're in them. But somehow you're not a household name yet. You're like right there. You're 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 you're, go, you're you're the space shuttle, and you're trying to get escape velocity. You're Rosebourne. You're almost there. Just really kind of like not quite there. She was in Bridesmaids. She was in X Men First Class. She, again, she was in Neighbors. And you're kind of like, yeah, I feel like you're there, but you need that one little push to get into the superstardom that I think you're going for. Putting that out there. Okay, wait. Yeah. I'm done with that. Um, okay. Here's a bad movie. Very Good Girls. Very Good Girls was um, written and directed by Naomi Foner, which is bizarre because uh, she's never directed a film before. She's the one who wrote uh, Running on Empty. Naomi Foner is also, you know who she is? She's the mother of Jake and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. True dad. Yep. So the mother of Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal, who uh, never directed a film before and wrote Running on Empty, which is a great film from 1988, I'm tempted to say, wound up writing and directing a bad film about these two uh, big city girls played by Dakota Fanning and Elizabeth Olsen 
who decide that over the summer they are going to uh, get laid for the first time before they leave for college. Okay. And they both have their eyes on the same dreamy street artist dude, played by some kid named uh, Boyd Holbrook. Okay. Good cast, Ellen Barkin, Richard Dreyfuss, Demi Moore, obviously Dakota Fanning and Elizabeth Olsen. The first problem with the movie, quite frankly, is, is that uh, Fanning and Olsen are too old. Uh, to play these roles, they're supposed to be kids going off to college, and they're both, uh, you know, they both look too old. Um, anyway, I, this thing is just was very disappointing. I was expecting more from Naomi Foner, um, but what are you going to do? So, The Signal is one of those uh, movies that falls into what I call the twilight zonization of movies, and that is, it happened exponentially ever since The uh, Sixth Sense. Uh, the director of this film, William Eubank, uh, this is Bob second Eubanks? Film. No, William Eubank. Bob Eubanks? The game show host? No. From the Hollywood no. game, whatever it was. No, no. <laughs> the, the, it's, it's the it was, it was it the it's the Newlywed game that he hosted, wasn't it? Anyway, <laughs> something like that. William Eubank, uh, who wrote and directed this, uh, previously did Love, which has nothing to do with love. It's basically kind of a companion film to Moon that was made in 2011 about a guy stuck in the space station, um, and uh, that was supposed to be a resume piece and didn't really get him a lot of traction. So he made the signal to get himself a lot more traction. Great cast, great effects, uh, fascinating concept that just completely disintegrates by the end. It, it just it goes completely off the rails when it starts showing its cards, and you, you, it, none of it makes any sense. It's, it's all just sort of to, to show off. And he's got a lot of style, but man, this really does not work as a story. It, 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 and it's too bad, because with all of these films, you paint yourself into a corner. And everyone's waiting, waiting for the big reveal, the, the great unveiling, the great explaining and the more exotic you make it, and the more twisted you make it, and the more confused you make the audience, and the more odd things you throw in there, the bigger the payoff has got to be. And all these movies do a really good job of building up like an incredibly bizarre scenario, but your expectations start going through the roof, and then when everything gets paid off, you just feel like, you didn't. Did you really just go there? Are you kidding me? That's the resolution? The Signal is one of those movies. Um, bunch of kids starts off. This one I remember the setup. Bunch of kids are uh, they're 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 gonna go track down. There's some MIT kids, right? A couple of a couple of dudes and a girl. They're on their way to go and, and try to find uh, this this hacker who's kind of like a nemesis of theirs. And he was taunting them at MIT, and they're gonna go show him that they know how to find him, and they're gonna defy this hacker and. And all this kind of stuff, and uh, the, the girl's like, hey man, it could be really dangerous, maybe this guy's crazy, no, we can track him down. And you think it's a movie about kids and hackers, and then suddenly they have what can only be described as a close encounter. All hell breaks loose in a completely psychotic, weird, alien way in some house in the desert. And next thing you know, that one kid is left, and he wakes up in this underground facility run by Lawrence Fishburne where he's in isolation and Fishburne is wearing this, uh, you know, this suit and a helmet and he Does wants... Does he have a red pill and a blue pill? No. That's like The Matrix? No. And he wants to know, what happened to me? And of course, they spend the whole movie not telling you what happened to him and he's trying to figure out where am I and what's going on down here in this, in this chamber, etc., etc. And uh, none of it makes a whole lot of sense until finally... Uh, it all resolves and you just have that really, are you kidding me? That's the end experience. I'm sure some people will go, whoa, cool. I did not. I, I thought it was completely forced and preposterous. Good looking Blu-ray though, I'll say that. It's a good looking blue. Carry on.
Fort McCoy is a uh, very heartfelt and um, sentimental and labor of lovish sort of film uh, written and directed by Kate Connor, and it takes place in 1944 at a uh, you know obviously one of the one of the American shames of World War II is that we um, we had about uh, you know a couple hundred uh, Japanese uh, prisoners in POW camps here, including uh, George Takei. Yes. Now also there was a there was also a number of German and Italian American civilians who were arrested as uh, you know potentially dangerous mm -hmm. enemies of the state, and uh, Fort McCoy is the story of Eric Stoltz. He it's not the story of Eric Stoltz, but Eric Stoltz plays a guy. It's so funny. I like they they don't want to have Eric Stoltz play like a soldier or a commander because there's too much like moral implications behind <laughs> that that the story can't handle. So they get him into this situation by making him the barber. He's uh, the yeah. barber at okay. Fort McCoy. Of Seville? And, yes. Yeah. The, the barber of Fort McCoy. And uh, while he's the barber at, uh, at Fort McCoy, he's, you know, he meets a Nazi SS officer. He's got a Catholic sister who falls in love with, the, with, with a Jewish soldier and all this sort of stuff. So um, it looks good. It's, again, it's very heartfelt, obvious labor of love. Uh, I respect the film. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a little... It's a little too sentimental for me, but um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, sidebar to the war that a lot of people uh, don't know about, and I'm not sure has ever even really been explored, in, at least in terms of film. So Fort McCoy, it could be if you're a parent, your parents might like it. Um, is there a real Fort McCoy? Oh, yeah. There is? Oh, yes. It's still around. Actually, Fort McCoy is still around. Oh, I mean, wow. There still is a Fort McCoy. Oh, wow. It how still about exists. That? Well, how about that? It is in, uh, it is in Wisconsin. Uh, of course it is. So, anyhow, uh, my name is A, by Anonymous. This is uh, based on the actual, on an actual case, a, uh, a, a thrill killer case, a young woman named Alyssa Bustamante. Do you know this story? Did you ever follow this story? I did not. Does it sound like this, the sound just changed? Do you uh, I'm not wearing up? a headset. You're wearing a headset. Oh, I'm yeah, that's right. You're not wearing anything. <laughs> I'm trying to figure this uh, this whole thing out. It sounds like it may have improved suddenly for some strange reason. The way the USB mics are very odd. Anyway, no, this is a, this is a true story, uh, written and directed by Shane Ryan, who does a, a decent job with it. I'm not that familiar with the actual story, so I have to um, imagine that it's a, it, it it means to share a little bit in common with uh, beautiful beautiful creatures, the uh, Peter Jackson film. Right. And, uh, you know, that's a very famous kind of two women who became killers story. And uh, same thing here. This is, uh, you, you know, a, a story, a very interesting story. Nine-year-old girl uh, disappears. And what transpires thereafter is deeply disturbing and uh, a little bit really weird, frankly. But for this particular genre of film, I, I found it to be uh, surprisingly engaging. So that is from Wild Eye Releasing, uh, kind of a nice little discovery. And then last on the uh, new movie front, before we uh, let Mark kind of tell us what else is coming out, we have Virgil Films, uh, a film called After by director Pieter Gaspertz. Uh, a really interesting cast here um, that includes um, Kathleen Quinlan, who's kind of the main anchor, but some other really solid actors, John Doman, who I've seen in a few things, Diane Neal, uh, Bruno Gunn, Mandy Gonzalez. These are not household names, but when you see them, you're like, oh, I've seen them and this and that and the other thing. So it was a really interesting bit of casting. But Kathleen Quinlan, of course, uh, a longtime favorite of mine, going all the way back to Twilight Zone, the movie. That's right. right. 
She was great in that. She was uh, the, there was the cornfield one. Uh, anyway, this is uh, this is a really interesting, very timely story about a family that is uh, in in upstate New York, kind of falling apart uh, because the family business is falling apart. And uh, it, it, as far as these these um, these family dramas go, this is totally different from any of the others. It does it goes into completely different places. It doesn't tread on all those cliches like what was the Merrill Street thing that I hated so much? August Osage August County. That's right. Yes. Oh, August Osage County, whatever it was, horrible. This is not that. This is better. And, uh, you know, didn't get really a theatrical release. Could have, if we lived in a different era, if we lived 10, 15 years ago. So um, give a shout-out to Kathleen Quinlan and uh, Virtual Films' release of After. Pretty sharp. Uh, Wait, we talk about DVDs that'll be coming your way soon? Hit us. Forget it, I'm not going to. Okay, fine. All right. But no, I'm not. Fine. My Fair Lady, 50th anniversary, coming out in December. I know a few things about this, by the way. Whoa! And it's going to blow your mind. And I, this, I never thought this would happen, honestly, this My Fair Lady release. There, there are a lot of rights reasons, you know. There's that. Anyway, I'll explain it more when we, when we cover it. All right. Lots coming out. Yeah. Uh, Time Bandit's coming out in Criterion. Totally. The, uh, yes. Criterion December. Huh? Have you seen Terry Gilliam's new film? I heard it's terrible. I've not seen it. It's just like, it's turgid. I think he's done. It's turgid. No, it's like, it's like, it's like he took all of these little pieces of Brazil... And tried to invent a new story around them, but there's no story. It's just like, well, it's kind of low budget and yeah, and it's got like really bad CGI in it. And it's Christoph Waltz is not endearing. He's weird and he calls himself we. He speaks we this, we that, and it's just it's not good. It's yeah. really it just it just kind of it doesn't go anywhere. That's a shame. He hasn't it's, done a good film in a while. He yeah. uh, he was on the Tonight Show promoting it. I know. Now, of course, you know Jimmy Fallon, the worst interviewer in talk show history. You know, you got a guy like Terry Gilliam on. You've really got to yeah. let him make a case for himself. Talk yeah. about Monty Python. Talk about Brazil or Time Bandits. What a crazy guy he right. is. Life he's had. Oh, now when you're Jimmy Fallon, when you're Jimmy Fallon. You just talk about Jimmy Fallon because all Jimmy Fallon does is interrupt because he's Jimmy Fallon and he can do that. <laughs> anyway, also, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to say this. this is a personal favorite of mine, not a favorite of mine. But I, I did notice that it's going to be released on Blu-ray by Kino in a couple of months. Now you're saying, why are you calling out this film of all the films in the world? Mm-hmm. I like the package, okay, with Gene Hackman <laughs> and Tommy Lee Jones. I, I don't it was, dislike it. Was, it. it was directed by the by Andrew Davis, who would go on to direct sure. The Fugitive. I don't dislike it. I I always found that. Well, first of all, I, I love uh, I love Gene Hackman almost as much as I love uh, Denzel Washington. In fact, when Crimson Tide came out. With Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington, mm-hmm. that was like pornography for me. All right, because they're my favorite. Anyway, the package is coming out. By the way, just one of my own personal favorites. I was just saying, I might be crazy. I'm not that crazy. Anyway, uh, what else is coming out? Um, let me see. We have uh, The Walking Dead season five is coming out. Who cares about that? Tenth um, anniversary Blu-ray of Sideways. Kind of interesting. That's coming out soon. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah. So also, by the way, Norman Jewison's Fist. Now Wade is a. I would only say this because Wade, you know Wade has something to say about Fist. Fist well, was just like this pro-labor film that starred... Joe uh, Esterhaus wrote it. Joe Esterhaus wrote it and Stallone starred in it. Yeah. That's coming out finally. Never been out before. Yeah, well, no, I mean, look, I, Melinda Dillon is a very good friend of mine since I was a kid. Grew up with her son, who's a good friend of mine. So, uh, you know, anything that Melinda's in, I kind of grew up with. So that includes Close Encounters and Fist and uh, Bound for Glory and... Uh, I love all those movies. 
it was it was just cool at the time to be able to see a movie and go, I know somebody in that movie. Um, now, Wade, you just put yes. something in front of me. Yes, I did. That we need to talk about. Yes, we do. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about we're, let, let, we'll get into it in a moment. Let's let's just cover a few of it. We're talking about uh, classic movies right now. We got a giant stack of them, so we got to burn through these so that we we can dedicate the last uh, 20, 25 minutes to the George Wait. Feltenstein interview. Oh, good. We we still have George. Oh, we still have George. Absolutely. And um, I'm gonna throw another uh, shout out to Cohen, who has a crazy awesome classic film here. This is a film I, I thought would never, ever see the light of day again. This thing just kind of languished out there, and it just, it was like a forgotten film. A Fritz Long movie written by Bertolt Brecht, Hangman Also Die. Uh, this is just absolutely phenomenal. Fully restored, thanks to the British Film Institute and Pinewood Studios. Uh, it includes a one-minute sequence that was not included in the original domestic release. And uh, amazing cinematography by James Wong Howe. It is, it is a really, really cool um, uh, World War II uh, political thriller. And it it's all takes place in Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. And uh, it's, a, it's just incredibly sharp. And, you know, anyone who knows Bertolt Brecht, I mean, if, when, when you have a name that people turn into an adjective, like Kubrick and Kubrickian, Brecht and Brechtian... You know that you're you're something special, and uh, Fritz Long and Bertolt Brecht just absolutely kill it with this. It is a fascinating combination of talents. Um, the film was made during World War II, before World War II even concluded. So you still have that feeling that a lot of World War II films, like in, in 1943, in this case, had, which is the vibrancy of this unresolved conflict and the fact that nobody really knows how it's going to resolve. And the United States had just entered the war, and uh, it's pretty great stuff. Uh, then we also have a couple of uh, awesome releases from Criterion that I also have been waiting for forever. Uh, Jack Clayton's The Innocents on Blu-ray. Arguably the scariest movie I have ever seen. If not the scariest, certainly in the top three. Uh, Jack Clayton, wonderful director. Oh, excuse me, Wade. Good grief. Uh, pre- also did you know, Room at the Top, got an Oscar nomination for it uh, more recently before he passed away. Uh, you know, certainly within the last few decades. One of his last films was Something Wicked This Way Comes with Jonathan Price. Uh, who, of course, was in Brazil by Terry Gilliam, bringing everything full circle. Uh, so Jack Clayton, uh, The Innocents, it, one of the greatest ghost stories you'll ever see. Fantastic performance by Deborah Carr. Uh, this is like the anti-Mary uh, Poppins governess movie. It's just outstanding. Uh, tons of special features here, including an audio commentary by um, uh, Christopher Frayling, who is a historian. And uh, just wonderful, wonderful look back at the movie. It is really great. Beautiful widescreen, fantastic black and white Blu-ray of The Innocents. The other criterion here is uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, Roman Polanski's version of the Shakespeare play, uh, which is arguably one of the best ever made. It is, uh, it's just first rate. Uh, Polanski pulls out all the stops, completely Polanski-izes the thing. You get the 1971 documentary Polanski meets Macbeth on here. Uh, gobs of other uh, extras that just are, are, are incredibly fantastic. There's even a, um, uh, an interview with co-screenwriter Kenneth Tynan from the Dick Cavett show in 1971. And anything with Dick Cavett is just the best, isn't it? Wasn't oh, Dick totally. Cavett the best interviewer ever of all time? I don't know about ever of all time, but he oh, definitely was awesome. Dick Cavett was just, he was it. Anyway, so really, really wonderful. Uh, and an essay by Terrence Rafferty, of all people. So uh, that's from 1971. 
two hours and 20 minutes of Polanski doing Macbeth. And man, is that just a, that'll just wipe you out. Mama said knock you out. You got it. Ghostbusters 1 and 2, which is uh, now packaged in a pretty little handsome digibook-style case, finally yep. out. Mm-hmm. Both have some all-new features. Um, obviously, Ghostbusters uh, totally holds up. Classic, mostly thanks to Bill Murray, because he's timeless and great and always hilarious. I like Ghostbusters 2. Most people did not. I like uh, two scenes in Ghostbusters 2. Yes. Just two scenes, though. The part where there's a ghost? No, I, I just, there are only two scenes in the movie that I like. And one of them is when Peter McNichol says, Via my covets vis goo. I still laugh at that. You know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I noticed when I popped this in that on, on the back of the box, the digit book box, they actually list every single language that comes with the subtitles. They usually don't do that. Yes. They don't put it on the back of the box. Usually on the back of the box, it doesn't say... English, Arabic, Bulgarian, Chinese, Croatian, Czech, Danish, Dutch, Finnish, French, German, Greek, Hebrew, it does Indian, here. Hungarian, Icelandic, I- Italian, Japanese, Korean, Norwegian, Polish, Portuguese, Romanian, Russian, Spanish, Swedish, Thai, and Turkish. Doesn't usually say that on the back of the box. Yeah, well, it does this time. Anyway, uh, these films are great. Uh, the transfers are the same as in the previous 17,000 versions of the uh, DVD and Blu-ray of Ghostbusters. Uh, actually, the Blu-ray of Ghostbusters 1 and 2. But looks good. New features. Got to get it. Remastered in 4K. Love it. Ghostbusters yeah, I, 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 I concur. You know, let's talk just for a second. The, 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 you know, it's funny. They finally reconciled themselves to the fact that Bill Murray was never going to sign on to a Ghostbusters 3. Uh, and the, but they, did, they still didn't want to actually hire anybody else until they got Bill Murray's blessing. And apparently now it's a go. And now that Bill Murray's like, yeah, I'm okay with female Ghostbusters. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> now it's a go. It's just the last thing you want is Bill Murray bad mouthing your new Ghostbusters. But tell me, it's not going to be like Paul Feig directing uh, it will Kristen be. Wig and Liz McCarthy. It and, will be. No. It will be. It'll be Paul Paul Feig or Feig. What's how do you pronounce it? It's Feig. Is it Feig? Pretty sure. Whatever. Mike, no producer Mike knows him. I know. Anyway, uh, Disney has given us uh, special editions now of two of their sort of less highly regarded uh, animated films from the Katzenberg and Eisner era, uh, Hercules and Tarzan. Uh, you know, I, of course, really am of the opinion that there's only ever been one screen Tarzan that's worth paying attention to, and that is uh, Greystoke. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, at least this honors the period, unlike the, the other animated Tarzan, the CGI animated Tarzan we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this honors the period. It Disneyfies it a little bit too much. Um, it's not really Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan. It's Disney's version of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan, which is exactly what they intended because they had to find a way of taking the uh, the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse at Disneyland and Disney World and making it uh, more relevant to a film that's more recent than uh, you know 45 years ago. So they uh, they oh, we'll make it Tarzan's treehouse. Okay, fine. That's the way you're going to be about it. Anyway, beautifully done. Uh, Not my favorite film, but I don't dislike it. Uh, It's got a bunch of fun little special features, you know, a thing on the music and a thing on Africa and uh, Phil Collins' music video. And uh, otherwise, it is good for kids, so I will be hanging on to it for when my daughter gets to uh, look at it after she's read Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan and realizes that it's not as good. Hercules is a film I don't like in the least. I, uh, I I just think this is completely misbegotten, but a lot of people do like it, so I won't overly rip on it. I think the animation is uh, tired. 
it's got a sing-along on it and a music video and uh, otherwise I would say it's really really nicely mastered but I, I have no problem with the, the, quality, the, look, the look and sound of the Disney Blu-rays they're amazing they really are amazing um, and then let me uh, crank through a bunch of Kino releases uh, here where's the interview Wade we gotta do the interview we are gonna do the interview Let's just let's just knock out a couple of these. We got to get through these kinos. Get through these kinos. Get through those uh, twilight times, and then we'll uh, we'll drop into the interview. Uh, Kino, of course, has their um, Studio Classics line, which is essentially mostly Orion, UA, MGM titles from that contract, and they have released a whole batch of really great new titles. Uh, Avalanche with uh, Rock Hudson, Mia Farrow, and Robert Forster. All of these on Blu-ray, of course. This is Avalanche from 1978 which probably would have done better if it didn't wind up coming out the exact same year as Superman, and nobody really wanted to see Superman, or see anything other than Superman, and certainly not directed by Corey Allen, produced by Roger Corman. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is, um, this is, this is, was kind of a, it was a better than average action set piece movie at the time. So, you know, if you, if you remember it fondly, you'll probably want to check it out again. Uh, absolutely first-rate, awesome film, written and directed by Richard Brooks, is Elmer Gantry. Which oh, yeah, won- good oh, stuff. so good, man. Won Burt Lancaster an Oscar for this part from 1960 as the uh, traveling salesman from hell. He is a hustler. He just, man, he just, he knows how to sell it, man. He just, he is that greasy, oily, conniving guy. And uh, this is just a great movie. Absolutely fantastic. Richard Brooks, I don't know if he made a better film. I really don't. I mean, he made a lot of good movies, but this is it. It's got an interview with uh, Shirley Jones and a trailer, and it is a good-looking Blu-ray. Terrace Bulba with Tony Curtis and Yul Brynner is a little silly. Uh, it's, you know, any, any period film with Tony Curtis in it, he just takes you right out of it. He does that in Spartacus. As soon as Tony Curtis shows up in Spartacus, you're on the back lot. You know what I mean? It's, you're on the back lot. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work with Tony Curtis. But um, it, it's okay, you know. It's, uh, Yul Brenner, Yul Brenner is fine. Uh, this all, uh, there's a little bit of a historical thing in this. You know, it's a 16th century story that takes place in Ukraine. So if you want to try to draw some parallels to the present day, I guess you probably can. Otherwise, it's a big glossy uh, Hollywood uh, widescreen thing with a, a, a kind of a a maudlin screenplay by Waldo Salt and Carl Thunberg, who are a couple of giants, but there's no way that these guys work together. You know, Thunberg rewrote Waldo Salt, and that's where some problems arise. J. Lee Thompson directed it. It's a nice, big, beautiful 235 widescreen 1962 epic that was overshadowed by Lawrence of Arabia the same year. Burt Lancaster uh, in The Young Savages, uh, another great performance by Lancaster, and we're not done. It's a, it's a big Burt Lancaster week. This is a John Frankenheimer film. Uh, and he plays a prosecutor here trying to get to the bottom of the story uh, with this East Harlem, uh, like this, this case that's very, 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 you know, heavily racial. 1961, race was a big deal. They were starting to accede it into movies. And uh, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a companion piece to, um, to, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, which came out the following year. Uh, Burt Lancaster is also really, really good in Run Silent, Run Deep, the famous legendary World War II submarine movie with uh, Clark Gable. Uh, this needs no introduction. It's a fun movie. Great score by Franz Waxman, and uh, also produced by Harold Hecht, who you know, produced uh, the, uh, the Young Savages, who was doing a lot of the, the Burt Lancaster stuff at the time. And uh, it's a sharp movie, really sharp movie. 
uh, directed by Robert Wise, who would, of course, go on to win two Academy Awards for uh, both Sound of Music and West Side Story. Flesh but and not Star Trek The Motion Picture? Uh, no. Uh, Flesh and Blood is the uh, Paul Verhoeven movie that kind of put him on the map. This was his first English-language film. Really graphic, really violent, but great performance uh, in particular from Rutger Hauer. Uh, kind of the, the very typical uh, Paul Verhoeven movie. Noteworthy in part because it was uh, photographed by Jan de Bont. So you have two future Hollywood mega directors, mega action directors involved here. Jennifer Jason Lee is a little bit out of, out of place in the period story. T- again, this is a 16th century tale. Uh, kind of a, med- a medieval knight, uh, you know, lots of lust and all that. Uh, we've got a couple with Sean Connery, as long as we're talking about Scottish independence. And uh, Meteor was a gigantic bomb. Do you remember what a tank this was? Oh, yeah. 1979, the year of Star Trek the Motion Picture, by the way. Uh, man, this thing, Ronald Neem, you know, Ronald Neem did Ronald Adventure. Did a side adventure, great British director. But, man, this was just like the end of the old school action film. This was a disaster. And uh, Stanley Mann co-wrote it with Edmund North. It just, it was, it's all about a meteor that's going to collide with the Earth. All-star cast, horrible. Just horrible. Natalie Wood and Sean Connery cannot save this film. It's it, Martin Landau, Trevor Howard, Henry Fonda, Carl Malden, everybody shows up in this thing. Dreadful. Here is the gem this week. If there's one that you've got to go out and rent or buy, you've got to look at The Great Train Robbery. Michael Crichton directed this. That is My, bizarre. It seems it so unchristian. It's so unchristian. Everything that he was writing and or directing from 1970 all the way through to the day he died, with the exception of ER on television, it was all science fiction stuff. It was all kind of you know futuristic cautionary viruses and man's technology run amok, and you know it was all that Jurassic Park and Andromeda Strain are essentially the same movie if you think about it. I mean, there's not a lot of difference there, and all Crichton ever did was science fictiony stuff, except for this, and it's his best film. It is, it, is a, it is a lot of fun. And uh, Sean Connery and Donald Sutherland, uh, Leslie Ann Down, it is absolutely wonderful, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, one of the rare cases where his films didn't suck. Uh, and it's just fantastic. Great Jerry Goldsmith music. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Cannot say enough about it. So Michael Crichton, as a director, never had a better moment. And uh, you want to check this out. So it's from Kino Lorber, Blu-ray of The Great Train Robbery at Long Last. What else we got, Mark? More? No, the, the Twilight Time stuff. Oh, all right. Then we'll do the interview. Then we'll do the interview, and okay. then we're done. Okay, here we go. Running through the Twilight Time stuff, we have La Bamba, which I was love this the, movie. Um, yes, La, Luis Valdez's terrific uh, biopic on um, Richie Valens, uh, played, of course, memorably by Lou Diamond Phillips, the, his best, uh, best performance. In fact, I would argue his only performance. <laughs> It's not uh, far off. A lot of good special features here, including audio commentary with Luis Valdez and uh, Lou Diamond Phillips and Eastside Morales, who is very good. Also. Oh, he is really good in this. He's, Morales is. He was, yeah. you know what, that, is like, that was a great supporting actor. Yeah. Where you cared about him and you cared about his journey as a character, but he existed ultimately to support the character of Richard yeah. Valens. And that's really what a supporting actor is supposed to do. So um, this is a great, you know, uh, all the good die young sort of, you know, myth. And uh, the great thing about it, too, which, which, which maybe this might resonate now, it didn't really resonate necessarily then, was that, you know, Richie Valens, you know, this is not a story about a, about a guy who died because he took drugs or he shot up or he killed his wife or, 
he, he whatever it is. No, he's a good he, kid. He's he was a good, good kid, and he yeah. had his meteoric rise, and then it was a terrible tragedy happened. But it was just nice to see that sort of film not have to do with like you know, oh, he shut up, and uh, they 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 found him dead with track marks in downtown L.A. It's just kind of nice. So you can enjoy it on that level as well. Uh, we also have one of Oliver Stone's best films, Salvador. It's, it, may, it, it really, it's shocking how good this movie is when you consider what a hack he became. <laughs> James Woods gives one of his best performances. He plays a, a photojournalist who, the guy has traveled all over the world, all these trouble spots for like decades, and now because he's guy's just a complete drunk, he can barely get a job until he's convinced by uh, a buddy of his, played by Jim Belushi, to go to El Salvador, and uh, all the stuff that happens there. This is just a great film. It really sets the tone for who Oliver Stone would would become this was this was kind of the thing that put him on the map put him on the map yeah. and uh john savage and john savage is always is always way out oh, he's there he's out of his mind he's always out of his mind this is hemdale by I, the way I, I, hemdale produced this i know hemdale oh, the production company of the late great oh, george harrison. I, I, I have experience I, no 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 no, no, no not no, george no. harrison no, no, i'm on the handmaid handmaid no george hemdale harrison. is um hemdale made platoon hemdale made platoon That's i had right. i have i have a bit of a story about hemdale uh, here we go another time okay. another time they still uh, owe me money from 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Do, you, do you think you'll ever get that money? No. Uh, Sam $250. I want my $2. Uh, this is not one of Sam Peckinpah's best films, but I liked it. it was, it's The Killer Elite. And uh, this is one of those movies. It's about a, uh, you know, it's about a bunch of retired, bunch of guys. They're like ex-CIA agents. They've all retired and his ex-partner. And they all go out and they just kick butt. It's got a great cast. It's got um, James Caan. It's got uh, Robert Duvall, Mako's mm-hmm. in it, and I liked it. I think it's good. It's really fun. Obviously, yep. Sam Peckinpah, even though he's a little bit of autopilot here, still he is Sam Peckinpah. The guy's going to bring the violence. He's going to bring the fun. I like the release. It's a good movie. Um, che. Now this is not the um, Soderbergh. Soderbergh one. This is the one by Richard Fleischer, and uh, this is just a bizarre. You know, this is probably the weirdest role that Omar Sharif ever played. Um, it is, without like, question. Do you it's see Omar Sharif is playing this character? So strange. It's so weird that he would do this, but, it, it, you know. And what's even weird is that Fidel Castro is played by Jack Palance. So Jack Palance, of, you know, who would win an Oscar for uh, City Slickers and, so and, and do a one-handed uh, uh, push-up on, on the Oscar stage. And uh, so Omar Sharif. Is, is, is it a good film? I, I, no. He, well, okay. I think it's better than the Soderbergh film. I think the Soderbergh film... I think it, it's, the Soderbergh film is too indulgent. He was too in love with his fancy new camera that he wanted to go down and shoot with yeah. that he couldn't just like make a tight, coherent film. And Soderbergh has made plenty of tight, coherent films. So I would give this a run over the Soderbergh one. Yeah. Uh, finally, from John Irvin, we have The Dogs of War. I like this movie. Yeah, do you like you know movie? I do I do I like it I mean I I like as far as John Irvin war movies go I like um, Hamburger Hill a lot better but oh, I yeah, like Hamburger totally. Hill I like that better than Platoon frankly I think it's what? one of the great what? Vietnam films Christopher Walken is just great in this he it's, is it's really good that he plays uh, he, there's a group of soldiers and it's um, and they go to Africa to overthrow the government there and uh, help out a coup and it's really cool it's a cool great. movie kind of overlooked. All right, and with that, we are now going to segue into our interview with Joe. Oh no, it's not, a, it's not a Vox Box with George Feltenstein of the Warner Archive. 
I am speaking with uh, George Feltenstein of the Warner Archives and of uh, warnerarchive.com. And uh, I have to do a shout-out to one of our listeners, John Lusty, who actually recommended this because he listens to, to your podcast along with Matthew Patterson. And uh, he, he wrote us and said, you guys really should, uh, you should talk to them because you guys do a lot of the same stuff. And, and so I did give your podcast a listen, and I, it's enthralling, and I think I'm, I think I'm hooked. Um, here, here are some of the things that John wanted to know about, and I think that a lot of our listeners want to know about as well. And for starters, I mean, there is such an enormous volume of material in the Warner archives. All the studios have huge archives. Most of them apparently either don't care or don't want to tap those archives. You guys have made a project of it. How do you even get started? Well, we were the first, and this was something that was planned as early as 2000, well, discussed as early as 2003 or four. Um, we didn't actually launch until March 23rd, 2009. Uh, but the idea was we have a library three times the size of anybody else's. And some of my colleagues were saying, we, we have to find a way to get the deeper library and available to everyone. Because at that time, uh, in 2009, there were about 4,100 movies that were on VHS up until 2003 when we stopped making VHS. And we only had about 1,700 movies on DVD. Wow. Uh, so where was the delta of the library? Where were the rest of those films going to come from? And then, of course, from my perspective, my involvement, I've been working with this library for many, many years. I was at MGM for 10 years. I was eventually the head of MGM UA Home Video. And then Turner... Uh, bought the library. I eventually moved to Turner, and then Warner Brothers bought Turner, and I came to Warner Brothers. And so my my play chest has become a lot larger over the years. But whether it be on video cassette, laserdisc, DVD, and now Blu-ray uh, and streaming, uh, the library to me is a fascinating. Uh, amalgam of the works of thousands and thousands of artists spanning decades, not names on a page, not pork bellies. Uh, we look at these films and television shows as important films and television shows and also something that may not be so important but has a following out there. And I've prided myself on knowing what fits where and what goes where, and I started in traditional home video retail, uh, and then as the retail business began to shift, where a lot of the stores where I would go shopping every Sunday morning, I would be at either Tower Records or Virgin or whatever, buying DVDs and CDs, a lot of those stores closed up, and whereas the video business continued to be robust, the business for catalog started to not have a retail outlet, and so we started the Warner Archive Collection with 150 features using existing masters, and now, five and a half years later, we're at almost 2,000 releases, and uh, we, within a year of being in the business, started remastering because we were running out of 
good quality masters that were in their original aspect ratio, which was essential for me from the beginning. Right. Uh, and eventually, uh, we reinvested in the library and continue to. And that's how, and since I'm a listener of your podcast and a religious one, uh, I know you've talked about the monogram films that we've released yeah. and some of the really obscure films that weren't on any lists. And in fact, we're on memos from previous owners like Allied Artists and Laura Marr where they said, these films are worthless, it's okay if they deteriorate. And I was like, uh, I don't agree with that philosophy. I know there's an audience out there for this. Yeah. And uh, whether it be something like Red Dust with Gene Harlow and Clark Gable, which people were clamoring for and never had made it to DVD, or it's the monogram cowboy movies or the Bowery Boys, or the television series like Beyond Westworld, which lasted five weeks before it rightfully got yanked off the air. But there's an audience for it, and we've prided ourselves on expanding to television, to animation, made-for-television movies, and most recently, and we're extraordinarily proud of this, Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, and we're taking that very seriously, and the releases have been slow in coming because we've been putting so much work into them because Blu-ray demands perfection and no shortcuts. Um, so that's where we are, and we're dedicated, and what we don't have in resources and people, we make up in passion. And I think that is uh, well, hopefully what, what distinguishes us from the rest. Well, it definitely shows. <laughs> you know, when, uh, one of my proudest moments is when, uh, when you put Greystoke out because – uh, I was I was a lowly usher at the Man's National Theater in Westwood when Greystoke opened, and it was uh, one of the most extraordinary platform releases, I think, of that day. I remember we were selling shows out repeatedly every weekend, week after week. I mean, it was an extraordinary run. And so that's burned into my memory as one of these great cinematic moments from my past. And the, and the Blu-ray came out, and, of course, I... You know, I just I just just couldn't control myself. So, um, you know, it's it those are moments that that where we just kind of sing your praises. Um, and they of course just recently sent us the uh, the great race, which I have to applaud you guys on. That is just such a a marvelous candy colored slapstick gem from the past. And um, you did a beautiful job on it, an absolutely spectacular job. Was that was was I mean how did that um, kind of fall onto the radar and and at what point did you say this has got to be a Blu-ray? Well, that what we do is I'm I still have a dotted line to Warner Home Video. I I have uh, one one leg of my of my one limb is still in in that business. So I'm involved in some of the things that they do, but most of my uh, daily functions are as uh, you know, taking care of the Warner Archive collection. But when you see something like Point Blank coming from Warner Home Video, you know that I've had a hand in it. And if we feel a film has retail potential, then Warner Home Video will go with it. And if Warner Home Video isn't interested in a particular film, then we'll do it for Warner Archive for Blu-ray. And The Great Race just... I was, like, shocked, like, it has such a fan base. People will initially perceive, oh, this was a box office failure. Uh, well, 50 years almost have passed, and in in between 
the time it was released, uh, and it did cost $12 million to make it, which was a lot of money at the time. But there have been decades and decades of people who love this movie. And I said, I think this would make a wonderful Blu-ray. And happily, all the pieces fell into place. And we, you know, made sure that when the great Leslie was coming down through the clouds, that the clouds were immaculate and that there were no speckles and there was no dirt. And Blu-ray is supposed to be the look and sound of perfect. And uh, that's what the Blu-ray Disc Association says, and those are the rules we abide by. So it means you brought up Greystoke. We sent Greystoke back to the cleaners four times, not in terms of dirt issues, but in terms of compression. When you've got waterfalls and grain that's supposed to be there in the film, the way that film was so shot uh, so beautifully, uh, that's very, very hard to compress on Blu-ray and have the emotion and the movement be lifelike. And uh, we, you know, like I used to say, we sell no wine before it's time. And, you know, we don't want something going out on Blu-ray until it's ready and it looks and sounds the best that it can be. And that we know we're selling our content directly to the fans and directly to people who are passionate about cinema. So um, we take it very seriously, and uh, I only wish that Blake Edwards was around uh, because I'm a big fan of his. I had the good pleasure of meeting him several years ago, and um, I'm 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 excited because I feel that it's going to get uh, a lot of attention because of this Blu-ray release. It came out on DVD in 2001 and really hasn't been promoted or marketed very much since then. And I think the time is right for people to rediscover this movie yep. if they forgot about it or discover it for the first time if they haven't seen it. And I'm, I'm, I'm giddy with anticipation as tomorrow is street date and we're... Our hopes are high because the more successful these releases are, the more that we can continue to mine the library for great Blu-rays while we continue to unearth noirs that nobody but Eddie Muller has ever heard of. So, <laughs> well, you know, I, we, uh, what I mentioned on, on the podcast was that it's uncanny to me how many people I talk to who've seen The Great Race years ago. But they don't. Their recollection is it's Terry. It's a Terry Thomas movie. It's not a Jack Lemmon movie. And and I just said, see, that's that's the amazing thing. Jack Lemmon, a guy you normally just who's so iconic, he disappears into that character in a way that you your memory you think he's someone else. I mean, it's it's just amazing. He's he's remarkable in it. And I I had read I hadn't seen the film in a long time until we started working on it. And I had I had fond memories of watching it on the 4:30 movie uh, in New York growing up, uh, in, when it was in two parts because it was so long. And I had shown it in the film series when I was in college in 60 millimeter cinemascope, you know. And then the DVD came out shortly after I moved to Warner Home Video. Uh, but I really hadn't seen it in a very long time, and I was like. I remember this movie being really good, but it's better than I even remembered yeah, it. it is. And uh, I'm very excited about the release, and I'm very grateful. I'm excited that you're excited oh, as a fan of your podcast. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's so flattering. 
Now, let me ask you, too. Here's, here's the thing about the technological part of this, because it's, you know, the archives have got to pose uh, big problems and challenges every once in a while. Um, what are, how do you deal with the technological end, and what are some of the biggest challenges that you have had so far? Well, the, the, it, there, there are two sets of challenges. Uh, the, the challenges for DVD, Blu-ray is a whole other set of challenges, but I'll talk about just like the DVD side of things. Um, the great majority of our library, and we're talking, we're talking like the older, let's say the Falcon series with George Sanders and his brother Tom Conway, or um, uh, even even a movie like Red Dust with with Gene Harlow and Clark Gable. Most of these movies hadn't been mastered in 20 years, 25 years. The existing masters that are shown on television uh, are not questioned because they've been sold to TV, and the broadcaster says, that's fine, they, they'll upconvert it to a fake HD or whatever. Um, but nobody really questions quality, and we have a certain responsibility to making sure that the end product is worthwhile to the consumer. Now, at the same time, you have a very, very, very rare, obscure movie from 1930 that nobody's been able to see and nobody's heard of. Our sales expectations are going to be less, so we adjust our spend accordingly because we have an accountability to our fans. We also have an accountability to the shareholders of our company, and I have to be accountable to management to running a profitable business. So it's that balance between profitability and quality that is constant. It's the battle. I've heard so many filmmakers talk about this, you know, art versus commerce. It's the endless battle. And um, trying to uh, – another example of this, uh, we just released finally our last volume of Bowery Boys films. Yes, you did, number four. Four and 48 movies. Now, we started to try to release this as a one-home video release in 2005, and we wanted to go chronological. And uh, someone came into my office with the tape of the master, the best master we had, and said, George, I don't think you're going to want to release this. And there, it was not only from 60 millimeter, but there were about 30 splices in just in the main titles alone. Oh, wow. I was like, we're in trouble. And I found out that we had no 35-millimeter material on the film. And that basically stalled anything with the Bowery Boys for years and years and years. And it shifted where catalog new to DVD eventually became more the domain of what we do with Warner Archive. And so we approached these films, but we couldn't go chronological. And this last set has that problematic film, Mr. Hex, where we used five different film elements, both 35mm and 16mm, to come up with the best possible result. And so that's a nine-year journey. That's one example of the kind of problems we run into. Now, here's another example where the end result is also a positive result. We've been doing a series of pre-code movies that dates back to my days in videocassette at MGM, that we, we build as Forbidden Hollywood. 
and I started Forbidden Hollywood as a VHS set of releases in 1989. Came to Warner Home Video. We started Forbidden Hollywood on DVD in 2004 or so, and continued it with Warner Archive. There was one film I wanted to put out in Forbidden Hollywood called The Key with William Powell. And I had them pull the fine-grained positive, which is a safety uh, copy of the original negative that was made back in the 50s. And it had very severe vinegar syndrome. Oh, dear. And what that meant was we couldn't use it to scan it to create a new master. Here's the good part. This is a Warner Brothers film. The Warner Brothers nitrate negatives are mostly all on deposit at the Library of Congress. We brought in the original negative. We made new fine grains. We scanned those new fine grains and created a new master. Ended up going in a William Powell and Warner Brothers set. But this request to look at the film let us know that our protection material was suffering from vinegar syndrome. And we go through, periodically, the vault people go through and check for vinegar all the time. But you're not going to be able to know with this condition of everything. And the work that we do has given us such a light. It shines such a bright light on the state of the film elements of all these different parts of the library. Another example I could give you is we've been releasing Dr. Kildare with Richard Chamberlain, which I think is a great series that's been totally forgotten, hasn't been seen in 25 years. The second season, second episode, was called The Burning Sky and was in color. And I was like, why would a black and white series have one episode in color? We'll we'll negate the fact that the fifth and last season was in color, and that's a different story. But why was this second episode in color? So I went and did my research, found out that NBC was doing a promotion with their parent company, RCA, to help sell color TVs. And they had a uh, color week. See your favorite, favorite black and white shows in color. So that's why that episode, The Burning Sky, was shot in color. Fascinating. So we pull in the interpositive and do our master because we've been remastering even though we're coming out on DVD with all these TV shows that we're doing, all the remastering we're doing is, in fact, in HD. And we do our HD master from the interpositive, which is made from the camera negative. And there's this terrible light and dark, light and dark, light and dark throughout the whole master. And I had them look at the film element, which was made in 1962. And there was something wrong with the light bulb in the lab when they made this element, and the element was 52 years old and, in effect, defective. So what happened? We went back to the camera negative, made a new interpositive, and used that for our release. But if we weren't putting these things out, we wouldn't know that these problems exist. And thank God they're still making film stock because we're living in an era where film stock is on its, you know, on borrowed time, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I, on a personal level, I am worried about the day when we don't have film stock for preservation. So. Well, Robert that, Harris has given me that same, that same, it communicated that same thing to me that it's you, you need the stock for preservation. If exactly, yeah. and that that that's why he and I are are very close friends, uh, and we we lament the state of this. 
all the time. And uh, that's uh, it's a very rewarding part of what we do, not only bringing people the films and television shows they want to own, and we're constantly listening to people's requests, and if something makes sense, we clear music for something that hasn't been distributed for 30 years because nobody wanted to deal with clearing the music. We'll do that. Sometimes it'll take uh, many, many years, but we, we stick to it, and we're dedicated to it. Well, let me let me ask you, before we run out of time here, uh, I, I want to also know how you handle the, the various libraries that comprise the, the Warner Library now, because I think, as everybody knows, it's not just Warner titles. It's Warner and MGM and Samuel Golden and Monogram and RKL. And, and over the years, uh, the Warner Library has grown through acquisitions to become so large and so rich and to represent such an incredibly deep history of film across such a broad base. Uh, that just seems like on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to be just a huge thing to have to wrap your arms around. Is there, do you have a process? Is, it a, is there a committee process, or is there some kind of a method that you use to sort of try to tackle that and, and take it apart brick by brick? Well, here's the beauty of it, and I do want to clarify also that the Samuel Goldwyn films are owned by the Samuel Goldwyn Family Trust, yes. and we have them under domestic home video license. Right just like we have a licensing deal for disc domestically with Paramount. But overall, our, our core library is, of course, of course, all Warner Brothers films, with the exception of films where Jack Warner made dead, bad deals and they reverted to a third party like My Fair Lady. <laughs> uh, all MGM films that were made up through April 1986, courtesy of our purchase of Turner, which had bought the MGM library from Krikorian, and then the RKO library, which we also got when we bought Turner. Uh, those are the main ones. And then when we bought Lorimar, Allied Artists and Monogram, what was left of that, because they had sold things off over the years, that fell under uh, Warner Brothers' ownership. So you've really got three major studio libraries plus two minor studio libraries and a lot of independents. And... Um, I have colleagues that I've been working with through various dynasties who, uh, Stephen Anastasi in particular, I want to give a shout out to because I worked with him back at Turner and then when Turner was purchased by Warner Brothers, he heads up our film preservation here at Warner Brothers. Um, he's got an amazing staff of people that constantly track these things and uh, make sure that the library is cared for. And the beauty of it is we're always making new discoveries. We're finding things that we didn't know we had. We're opening up cans and finding out that something is missing in the can, and we find that that leads to a search of finding something else that was in the wrong can, and then you find something else you didn't know you had. So I've been doing this for many, many years, and every day is still one fraught with discovery. And that is not only for film, but also for audio. We we had a huge series of CD soundtracks that came out through a joint venture we had with Rhino Records years ago, and I had the honor of producing many, many soundtrack CDs and then that continued with Film Score Monthly. Lucas Kendall, a wonderful gentleman, who put out so many of the instrumental scores, he became a great friend. And then there's all the animation. Uh, I mean, it's endless. Uh, I 
am hoping that uh, I will. I want to be here till I'm at least 85 or 90. <laughs> I got a lot of work to do, and I love my job, and I love working for Warner Brothers, and I love being able to get the content to the people that want it because I'm one of the people. I am a consumer of DVDs and Blu-rays and streaming and the whole bit. Uh, so I'm I'm one of I always say to the people when I talk to them you know I'm just like you I'm one of you I I buy the latest releases that uh, come from from our colleagues at other studios if they're films that we want you know I spent this weekend having a great time with the wonderful Criterion disc of Sweet Smell of Success which is one of my favorite movies um, so I celebrate the work of other people and uh you know we're all in this together and uh that's why bob harris is one of my best friends well so. he, he's a he's a good friend of mine too and uh it's it's an education every single time i talk to him i feel like yes. I learned something new so my my last question then is there is there anything that you can talk about that might be coming down the pike and, and i'm glad you mentioned the animation there too because the hanna-barbera stuff is something that i i always look forward to that's an, an entirely amazing library unto itself um, what what uh, is there anything that you can talk about that's coming down the pike? Well, I can say there will be more Hanna Barbera. There will be more films on Blu-ray. We don't like to tip our hat too much about something that may be coming along, because if we hit a snag, then yeah. we end up with a disappointed consumer. Case in point, I've been trying for five years to release Frank Perry's last summer, and we won't do it until we can release Frank Perry's last summer, not the butchered version that ended up getting cut to an R and so forth and so on. And I've got two archivists arriving here this week to help go through the vault so that we can hopefully go through the pieces to find the pieces we need to get that out. And every summer that goes by that we haven't put out last summer, I feel depressed. <laughs> well, it's going to be worth the wait, I'm sure. That's what we're we're hoping to do. We we're only aspiring for bigger and better and more dedication to what consumers want. That's what we're here for. Wow. Well, I, and and the fans uh, appreciate it. I mean, uh, that that I I know just from our listeners alone. It's uh, it's just magnificent. Well, and as one of your listeners, I gotta say I I, I love I, your podcast and was very distressed this week that they, that you skipped a week, but we skipped we, a week of releases too. Well, that's so we we're we're back in we're back in the saddle and we're back up to it. So I I just cannot uh, cannot thank you enough, George. Thank you so much. It's and, been a pleasure. Uh, it has been a real pleasure. Keep up the good work, because the the better work, the better the work that you do, the easier our job is. So we. Well, my it. pleasure, and I thank you for all the kind words, and I'll be listening to your show this week and weeks thereafter. Perfect. Thanks thank so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. George Feldenstein, everybody. That's great. You know what? That's it's, great. Here's the thing. You know, uh, you want to know. Sometimes you want to know how the sausage is made. Yeah. You want to know how they decide what to put out, how they put it out, yeah. the business of putting it out, the creative aspects of putting it out, and it just really goes to show that those guys really have their head on straight. That's, they do. that's one of the best companies out there. Great. Really great stuff. All right, and with that, we are done. We'll see you next week. <laughs>